Marvel, welcome again to City Life this beautiful Saturday afternoon. I'm headed straight after service to a wedding in Richmond, so I'm glad it cleared up for Cassie and Jeremy as they got married. Yep. But welcome. Welcome to City Life. Welcome to the party that happens the week after Easter, right? When some people, they forget church is still going on, but God is still good. Jesus is still risen. Holy Spirit is still moving, and we got a reason to worship. We got a reason to praise, and we got a reason to pursue him tonight. Uh, Pastor Michael Giroux, that's how he pronounces it now, he planted City Life in Newport News a little over 10 years ago. He pastors now in D.C., but I saw him tweet something out just this past week. He said, I can understand why some people only come to church on Easter. What I can't understand is why church people only invite others on Easter. And that was a challenge he was issuing to his church. Yeah, so we had those Easter flyers we were passing out two by two. (laughs) But we also have hundreds of new reach cards out on the info table that just stacks on stacks. And we got hundreds more coming in, so you can just... Be reckless giving those out. Groceries, tellers, right, bank tellers, whatever. Don't put it under my windshield. That just annoys me. But, hey, to each their own. But just pass those out recklessly, um, just like we did for Easter. But we're going to start tonight a series called Good News, basically joining the other two campuses. Because Easter is more than a one-time event, right? When we grasp its grace, It should spark something in us, a domino effect that changes the way we live, a chain reaction that changes the way we live day to day. So tonight, we're going to start this series, Good News. The sermon tonight is titled, Can I Get a Witness? I promise not to shout that at any point, try to shout you guys down. I might drop a, you two need me not to hear me. You know, I, I would drop that in RC every now and again. The kids loved it, but I promise not to say, can I get a witness? Other than that one time I just did. But the text tonight is Acts chapter 8. So if you got your Bible, actually, you can start with Acts chapter 1. We're going to work our way to 8. But uh, you can start there. If you got a Bible with you, if you got the YouVersion app, if not, there's Bibles under your chair. I love it here. But uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is where we're starting. And Pastor Fred and, and Pastor Jamie, they've been preaching this series now for months. While we were launching, they started this good news series. And I hope you've been taking advantage of that, the, the fact that we're one church, three locations. Every weekend, there's three teachings. There's three exhortations. There's three sermons that we can tap into to get poured into with. So I hope you're taking advantage of that. I hope you're making that a part of your just daily routine. So good. So let me just ask you, though, how many of you guys in your daily routine, you watch the news, right? How many of you watch it in the morning, like the 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock news? Any like 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock evening around dinner time? Wayne, you just knock them all out. What about 10 and 11? Not 10 or 11? 10 or 11, well, 10 o'clock news was my parents' niche because 11 was too late. So 10 o'clock news up around D.C., <laughs> rabbit trail. How many of you guys have seen that video that went viral? There was a, a woman on a catwalk. She had high heels on, and she started doing, like, the double stanky leg, losing her balance, and then fell over. And the newscasters just couldn't contain their lap. Anybody's seen that? No? I'll post it to Facebook. It exists. But those two guys, Jim Vance and George Michaels, they did the news all the time in D.C. So those were, that was like, oh, those are my boys. I grew up watching them 10 o'clock every night. But Stephanie, my wife, she, she doesn't watch the news daily. How many of you guys don't, would say, I don't watch the news daily? You know, her thing is she's like, it just makes me depressed. <laughs> I got an amen on that. But, you know, like, I'll check my app. There's like the list of five things you should know that happened in the news yesterday or that kind of stuff. But really, the news is kind of like a highlight reel for a broken world. There was an old song by Jack Johnson on his first album before I realized all his Music kind of sounded the same. That says, why don't the newscasters cry when they read about people who die? 
at least they could be decent enough to put just a tear in their eyes. Again, news is like a highlight reel of the brokenness of the world. And the brokenness of the world is there because of the brokenness of man. And the brokenness of man is there because we're broken by sin. But that's the bad news that makes the good news so good. If you've been taking advantage of listening to these other sermons, you might have heard Pastor Jamie say in the sermon he preached in Newport News, he said what makes the good news so hard to see as good is the fact that the bad news is so bad and it's about us. But here's the thing. If we don't believe the bad news, we'll never believe the good news. What he's saying is until you realize the depth of sin and brokenness, you'll never be able to grasp the glory of God's grace. For news to be good, it has to invade a, a bad place, and that's exactly what the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ does. You know, most news are one-time events, and if it's a really big event, it makes history. It goes down in the history books, and I love history. Anybody else here just enjoy history? Any, like, history majors or minors here? Nice. See, I didn't major, I didn't minor in it, but I enjoy it. Uh, Netflix, whenever I'm eating, I want something where I can watch 10 or 15 minutes. Right now I'm working through some PBS thing called, uh, what is it, Many Rivers to Cross. It's about the African-American experience. Uh, there's my fav- one of my favorite books in the house is called History's Greatest Hits, just five pages at a time of just everything that's gone down in history. But, you know, again, Easter, the good news, is more than a one-time event. It's more than just history in that regard. The good news is also more than just about our future. Yes, the good news affects where we're going to spend our eternity, where we're going to spend our days after this life. But most Christians, most people, desperately need to figure out life before death. How the good news affects me here. How the good affects me now. Like what Terrence was talking about, heaven now, heaven forever. How does the good news affect me in this life? And the good news is so good because it's eternally relevant to right now. There will never be a person not affected by the good news. There will never be a place that's not affected by the good news. There will never be a moment that's not affected by the good news. Is old news to you, it will be dull news to everybody else. If the good news is old news to you, just happened, we're cool, one-time experience, it'll be dull news to everybody else. That's why as we've been launching Newport News in Williamsburg, they've been in this series for months that's why Peter says in his letter in 2 Peter 1.12, I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you've been taught. Because the gospel has more facets than a diamond. It's inexhaustible, the, the depth of God's grace. And the good news of God's grace should be a daily part of your routine. Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the grave, it happened one day some 2,000 years ago as we celebrated at Easter. But its effects aren't one time a year or once a week on the weekend. It's what another author, Paul David Tripp, calls the nowism of the gospel. I think I've quoted that multiple times. I'm just going to start saying it without referencing him because I'm just going to make it my own. The nowism of the gospel. The right here, right now reality of the good news. The benefits of the gospel. Our eternal, never lessening need for God's grace. The good news affects now. You know, if your identity isn't placed in the unshakable love of Jesus Christ, then your identity will be shaken. But again, that's what makes the good news so good. It transforms us even in our heart, even in our identity. News informs, but the good news is good because it doesn't just inform, it transforms, right? History classes, they inform you, but your Bible doesn't just inform you what happened. When you start to take it as truth and apply it to your life, it transforms you. News informs, But the good news transforms yesterday, today, and forever. 
But sometimes we can become good news amnesiacs, like have good news amnesia, where we forget how the good news affects us right now. The freedom, the security, the identity, dare I say the swagger that comes from knowing what happened at the cross and how it applies to us and the depth of God's grace. You know, other times we can become good news consumers, where we gather information without investing our lives in the transformation that's offered, where we turn the good news and what we read in the Bible almost to like a philosophy class, where we, it's like a class and there's information, but we don't invest in Christ and the transformation that's available. You know, these people, these good news consumers, some of them are missing heaven by little more than a foot because the gospel never makes it from their head to their heart, never begins to transform the way they live. Why is this all important? Because we're, we're not called to good news amnesia. We're not called to be good news consumers. We're called to be good news witnesses. And that's what I want to look at tonight. Because the good news spreads through witnesses. Again, I want to start in Acts 1.8. Where Jesus is speaking after Easter, right? Sometime after Easter, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, news turns to witnesses to tell the story because they experience it. So you'll see interviewers asking these witnesses questions, and that's the news. And sometimes it's some level-headed people. It's pretty uneventful. Sometimes they catch somebody that's a little tilted and crazy. What was his name? Antoine Dotson. That was... Like seven or eight years ago. And I could remember his name off the top of my head when I was studying for this sermon. Seven or eight years ago. He was the one, it was what, the, uh, yeah, people were breaking into apartments. Hide your kids, hide your wife. Talking, we're going to find you. They turned it into a song. Like Steph's at a wedding right now. The high point for me of my wedding, what I love to look back on, is the last song we played was a slow dance. Everybody was dancing, all these husbands with their wives, and it was the Flamingos, I Only Have Eyes For You. Right, love songs that actually lined up with God's word, right? I only have eyes for you. I love that song. That was like the high point of the wedding for me. One of them. <laughs> the low point was one of my groomsmen, they made a song out of that Antoine Dodson uh, interview. Auto-tuned his voice, dropped a beat. It was catchy. And he asked the DJ, hey, can we play that? Unbeknownst to me, and it starts playing. And everybody went crazy. But that was Antoine Dodson. Even more recently, there was, I think her name's Sweet Brown. Yeah. She thought somebody was having a barbecue. It was just smoke. The building was on fire. She caught bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time for that. That turned into a song. There's, I think people at this point are just thinking, how crazy can I be in this interview so that I will go viral? And then I can make a song out of it. Like, Antoine Dotson's song was on iTunes, selling for 99 cents a pop. But the news happens through witnesses. God turns to us as witnesses. We're imperfect like them. We're a little more level-headed. I like to think we're a little more socially attuned. But God turns to us to share the good news of Jesus Christ as witnesses. But for our witness to be effective, it has to be a witness. It means it must come from firsthand knowledge of Jesus Christ. We, like the apostles in Acts 4.20, should be able to say, I can't help but to speak about what I've seen and heard. The question is, have we seen it firsthand? Have we heard it firsthand, this gospel, this good news, how it applies to us? Maybe not seeing Jesus, but knowing of Jesus, learning it firsthand, adapting, adopting it firsthand. 
Or have we adopted secondhand teachings and things that have passed on to us? You know, there's some scary statistics that I saw this week as I was studying. Less than 30% of Christians in their lifetime will read the Bible from cover to cover. 82% of American Christians only open their Bible in church on the weekend. The result is lots of educationally dependent Christians that aren't spiritually independent. Now, we want community. We want to gather. But you got to know how to feed yourself God's word to apply it to your life. And again, accountability, relationship, it all plays a part. But you look at Daniel in Babylon, you know, can grace and habits get you through? Christians aren't living out their witness because they've never experienced Christ for themselves, for firsthand. But the good news travels through witnesses, and there's less and less of those going around. But if you look at Acts, the first chapters, you see the first group of people who follow Jesus without physically encountering him, without talking to him, listening to him. But these were the people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That word devoted means to be persistent and constantly adhere to something. Do we do that with God's word? You know, in Acts 6, we begin to receive accounts of people living as witnesses to Jesus that weren't firsthand witnesses. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says the number of disciples kept increasing. Their numbers were added to daily based on the apostles' witness. But the apostles, they were busy ministering the word of God, praying for people. And the widows, we're going to read it in a second, but some of them felt neglected. So the apostles were like, hey, we need to find some young strapping lads to do this for us. So let's turn to Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected, full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, and five others. <laughs> These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So we see Stephen and Philip described as full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. You know, I know a lot of people that might struggle with this. You're full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Think, come on, I can lead prayer. I can lead these groups. I can teach. I can lead people. Yet they were asked to serve through the basic needs found in the church. These guys are full of potential, spirit and wisdom, but they're making sure people in the fellowship hall, these widows are feeling welcomed. They're not being neglected. But here's the thing we see. If you're overqualified to serve the church in the most basic ways, you're always going to be underqualified for leadership. Another way to say it is if serving is too small for you, then leadership will always be too big for you. Pastor Fred says all the time, leadership, God's calling on your life has a self-evidencing quality. He says your callings make room for you. When you just start serving, it's evident this person's a leader. That's what you see with Stephen. It's what you see with Philip. And when you look at Jesus, nothing for him was too low. He was interacting with lepers, people that that society called unclean. He washed the disciples' feet. I see all these pastors, right, doing these ceremonies in service, washing people's feet. I'm like, God, please don't ever call me to do that. I don't like feet like that. 
If he does, I'll be obedient. But I'm like, God, don't wake me up in the middle of the night saying, I got to do a foot washing ceremony. But if you're going to be a witness to Jesus Christ, you need to live out the same humility and service that he had. And that's what I love about Stephen. Stephen gave himself to this role of service. His witness was rooted in his daily grind. His witness was rooted in his nine to five. His witness was rooted in this blue collar work that he was given distributing food to these widows. And he gave himself to practicing what Paul would later preach. Paul would later say in one of his letters, whatever you do, eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether it's a blue collar job or a white collar job, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you're uh, serving in the nursery, preaching from the pulpit, singing from the worship team, holding a door open for visitors, do it all for the glory of God. And when you have a heart to do whatever for the glory of God, guess what? The glory of God starts showing up. That's what I love about Stephen. Just a couple verses later as he's waiting tables, miracles just start happening. It says just a couple verses later that Stephen did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. That got attention, but it wasn't all positive. Opposition from the Jews came in the form of slander and lies. They drag him into court, and he's full of wisdom. He's like, I I can challenge you with wisdom. Gives the longest speech in Acts. At the end, he challenges them for persecuting the prophets, killing Jesus. And ironically, they prove his point. They persecute and stone him. He's killed. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. In a lot of ways, we'll see in a second, it allowed the church to expand its witness. But I just want to look at two points with Stephen before we move on to Philip. Because again, he was the first martyr in the church. And, you know, as a young believer, or even now, caught up in moments of zeal and passion, like, I would love to go out a martyr, right? Just for the glory of God, just go out, not guns blazing, usually blazing at a stake or stoned, whatever, but to die a martyr. Go all out for God. The glory in that. You know, that for some, that's their calling. We should be praying for those people persecuted for their faith all around the world who are dying as martyrs. Pray for them. Pray for them. But for many, that's it's not their calling. And if it is, God is still almost more interested in how we live our witness before we meet him. St. Augustine said, it's not the pain but the purpose that makes the martyr. Jesus died so we could live our lives with purpose and witness for him daily. You look at the restoration of Peter. We looked at Peter last week. He says, I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. When Jesus said they're going to fall away, he's like, no, I'm ready to die for you. I'll go out a martyr. And when he denies Jesus instead, his restoration wasn't like, oh, Jesus. Well, Jesus wasn't like, you ready to die for me? We can do it right now. No, he was asking, live for me. Care for my sheep. Here's your purpose. Here's your calling. Jesus died for Peter. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you so that we could live for him. So our soul witness wouldn't be something shared at a funeral by a pastor, but our witness can be day in, day out living for Jesus Christ. Not just witnessing the weeks before Easter and Christmas, but genuinely living for him. Not just witnessing from the mountaintop, but even sharing our witness in the valley. It's the second thing we see about our witness from, from Stephen. In, in Acts 8.14, it says that those who were scattered by the ensuing persecution, that the church's witness grew. God can use persecution and suffering. God can even use the person doing it, we see with Saul. You know, we talked about last week how suffering isn't an obstacle. Sometimes it's an opportunity to be used by God. Sometimes, like we see here, the persecution was an opportunity for their witness to grow. They needed that kick in the pants to get moving outside of Jerusalem. Sometimes it takes a dose of discomfort to get us moving. 
You know, my yard is laced with dandelions. I mowed my yard for the first time last week. How many of you guys have mowed your lawn so far this year? There's just like a period of mourning for me that happens. I realize, oh, this is every week for the next few months, mowing my lawn. Thank goodness at our house here in Chesapeake, the lawn's a little smaller. Doesn't take me as long. But I mowed it this past Thursday because we're going to be going to the Dominican Republic all next week. And I didn't want to come back to snakes in my grass because the grass was to my knees. But uh, so I mowed it. The next day on Friday, I'm pulling into the driveway ready to admire, right, like my freshly mowed lawn. But there were already dandelions, I swear, two to three inches tall. I'm like, how fast do you grow? Dandelions have this insidious grip on my lawn. And if, if I weed and seed it like I did in my last house, I feel like it's just weed and weed. It just looks like scorched earth. Everything's brown. No grass comes. Nothing grows. So I'm just going to keep mowing them down. But you know, as a little kid, they weren't quite as annoying. But when you get a good dandelion seed head that's, you know, four or five inches tall, as a kid, I like to get a couple steps going, and I'm left-footed, so I would come up and try to catch it at the bottom and kick it, and you could send it flying like 10 feet. And just you watch the, the seeds fly like an explosion. Anybody else do this? Just as a kid, I love to do that. Some people like to step on leaves. I like to kick dandelion heads. It looked like a, an explosion, and, you know, you think, oh, yeah, I took care of that dandelion. But then you realize later in life, all those seeds, you're just littering your lawn with more dandelions. For me as a kid, I'm like cheering it on. My dad's inside like, what are you doing? But I'd imagine that misplaced feeling of satisfaction is what Satan felt on Good Friday. Like I took care of him. But you know what? There's a great quote by a man, Walter Wink. It's my favorite quote that deals with Easter. He says, killing Jesus was like trying to kill a dandelion seed head by blowing on it. It's like Jesus said before his death in John 12, 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I love that in Acts, Luke, the author, he didn't use the general term for scattering when he said that they were scattered. He uses a word that means to scatter seed as it's scattered on the ground. These people who were fleeing from their lives, they didn't travel as refugees. They traveled as witnesses. They weren't witnesses to the tragedy of the moment, but they were witnesses to the triumph in Jesus Christ. So we got to ask ourselves, what's my witness? What's my daily confession? Do I spend more time talking about my problems or more times reflecting on how the nowism of the gospel, daily grace, empowers me? What's my witness? What's the witness of my words, of my conversations, of my comments, of my statuses on the internet? What is my witness? takes more than just 10 seconds during a sermon, but I encourage you to ask that question. What's my witness? Because the good news spreads through witnesses. Is it spreading through me? Again in Acts 1.8, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's as if Jesus is saying, if my spirit does its work in Jerusalem, it will be impossible for it to just stay in Jerusalem. If the good news does its work in you, it's going to be impossible for it to stay in you. There was a quote by Curry Blake I shared a couple weeks ago where he said, hey, if your gospel isn't touching people, it hasn't touched you. If the good news isn't challenging you to share it, then we need to embrace it again. Because there was a problem. When we read in Acts chapter 8, they were still in Jerusalem. Jesus had told them chapters and chapters and chapters before, hey, Jerusalem, Judea, through Samaria to the ends of the earth. But they were still 
parked in Jerusalem. But Stephen's witness sparked persecution, and that persecution energized the church's witness. You know, to know suffering and grief, like we talked about last week, that's to know Christ in a deeper way. Isaiah 53 talks about how he was a man of sorrows. It's where we get this picture of the suffering servant. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. But in our culture, discomfort is something we don't want a part of. In our kingdom of comfort, we cherish comfort. We cherish our comfort zone and we think, oh, but that's uncomfortable. Well, the question is, what do you cherish more? Knowing your comfort or knowing Jesus Christ? Because stepping into moments of discomfort sometimes helps us know Jesus in a deeper way. And for the early church, that question was easy. They were like, I want to know Christ and share that with others. I think sometimes, though, for us, our deepest desire is some form of, like, witness protection from heaven, right? That in our witness, we're going to be saved from any kind of rejection, persecution, or pain, or just anything that's uncomfortable. But we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because your comfort zone is a danger zone. If you never leave your comfort zone, you'll never leave your Jerusalem, whatever that is for you. Again, witness sparked persecution in part, and persecution energized that witness. Persecution spread Jesus' followers like the seeds of a dandelion head. You look even further in Acts, all the way in Acts eleven nineteen. it's talking about those who have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Still making references to that. But Philip, like Stephen, was one of those selected to distribute food to the widows. And after Stephen's death, he was one of those that were scattered. The first account of church activity and the spread of good news after Stephen's death was about Philip. So there's two lessons real quick in our witness. Two encounters with two people that teach us about our witness. And they're in Acts chapter 8. So if you could turn, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 25. And as you turn there, I brought something tonight. When I was a junior in high school, 9-11 happened. And I grabbed all these newspapers, saved them, and eventually I decided I was going to put them in a scrapbook. I don't know what possessed me, but all these pictures, all these articles, I look back on now. And I was a junior in high school. I was planning for college. I think I knew where I wanted to go, looking at scholarships. But that happened, and I seriously considered the military because that was the kind of news that made you want to do something. People were just driving to New York to help clean up because that was the kind of news where it almost required a response. You know, the good news is the same way. The good news requires a response. The good news isn't just God created, man sinned, Jesus saved us. Sometimes I think we leave it at that. The good news is God created, man sinned, is broken, Jesus saved us, but then there's a response that needs to happen. The good news requires a response. You look at Peter, when he preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says, When the people heard the good news, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? How do we get in on this solution? How do we get in on what Jesus offers? And he tells them their response should be, Repent of sin and turn to God. So if we turn to Acts chapter 8, Philip is ministering in Samaria. Again, in verse 4, it says, The believers who were scattered, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. 
and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. Skipping to verse 18, it says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you have said won't happen to me. See, we see in Acts chapter 8 these signs and wonders were happening. These signs enhanced the preaching of God's word, called people to attention, sparked their curiosity, and then they would preach the good news. There were often healings, as it says. You know, how often do we go to church looking for healing? Not just physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing. You know, salvation is the greatest healing we'll ever see. It's the greatest miracle we'll ever see. Our brokenness meeting God's grace. But Simon's response to the miraculous, it was, it was flawed. He was seduced into thinking that the Spirit of God could be purchased and sold. This idea that everything's got a price. What's this going to cost me? I'm this great guy who was probably loaded. What can I spend to get this spirit? But Christianity and the good news isn't something that we just package and sell. Because, again, the good news requires a response. The good news requires a response of repentance and faith. But we live in a consumer culture. Simon was expressing those same sentiments. But we don't just obtain it and add it to our collection. We don't just obtain it and compartmentalize it with the rest of our life. The good news of Jesus Christ makes him king and Lord. That's what Christ means, that you don't just add him to your life. He rules over your life. You don't buy and sell the good news. You sell yourself to it. Paul references himself again and again as a servant and a slave to the good news. Peter's reply to Simon in verse 20 was, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Then he says, repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Again, here's the response to the good news. Repentance and faith. He says, repent and pray. Don't just be informed, be transformed. You know, I do like history. And Benedict Arnold, how many of you have heard of Benedict Arnold? I remember probably like my first reference was Looney Tunes. Like in pop culture, they talk about Benedict Arnold because he's just synonymous with traitor. But Benedict Arnold was a part of the first ever oath of allegiance taken by soldiers in the Revolutionary War. Yet he never truly forsook Britain. He kept open lines of communication with them until a year later he would ultimately switch sides. Within a year, he was informing the British of American locations and plans. Within two years, he was commanding British forces and fighting against George Washington. So now, again, his name is synonymous with traitor, backstabber, just living the trife life. 
Because like Benedict Arnold, he made this oath, but he never really got rid of all his other loyalties. And in the same way, we don't just make an oath, pray a prayer at an altar, and then add it to a a list of pursuits in life. We repent and believe. Repentance means you turn from sin. Faith means you believe, you pursue Christ. You pick up new pursuits. Your life is changed. It's not information, it's transformation. The good news isn't a newspaper that we clip and frame or make a little scrapbook out of. The good news should change the way we live. You know, if a church service can be fully resolved in the 90 minutes that it happens in or two hours, whatever kind of church you go to, then it's missed the point. The church is here to remind us, instruct us, and inspire us. Or as it says in Hebrews, it's here to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Come on, we're in a series called The Good News. But hopefully that's not the end of that witness. The point of the sermons is to be the first word. We get the final word every week with our actions and our witness. So that's Philip and the sorcerer Simon. As you go on in Acts chapter 8, you see that Philip encounters a eunuch. And you've seen at this point, even in the passage we just read, that again, as, as Fred says, your gifts and calling make room for themselves. He went from distributing food to widows to leading this revival in Samaria, which is a big deal because we see Acts 1.8 begins to work its way out of Jerusalem. He's graduated, and he left this thriving situation for this desert road. Kind of seems like a demotion or a derailing of his destiny, but he chose obedience over comfort. He chose faith over familiarity. You know, he probably could have been like, God, I got prayer meetings to lead. I got hundreds of people in my congregation. I got to distribute food to widows now, right? I got people doing that for me. I got to lead this revival. I got sermons to preach, things to plan for, big tent revivals to, to get going. But he took the step of obedience anyways. And you know, for Philip in a culture where people didn't just take up and travel all the time, like we had the opportunity to these days, Ethiopia was like the ends of the earth. Matter of fact, in ancient literature, the Ethiopians were considered as living in the ends of the earth. So again, with the gospel going through Samaria and now to Ethiopia, we see this important picture of how our witness is supposed to go. Like the Great Commission says, go. But Philip's encounter with the eunuch, what I just want to look at for a minute is just the power of one-on-one witness. You know, it shows that the most prominent preachers should also be the most personal evangelists. There's no less value in informal personal evangelism than there is in formal prolific preaching. Philip takes this long journey to share the good news with one person. And this account, this one-on-one account, is given the same amount of space in Scripture as this huge revival in Samaria, which again was a big deal. But this passage shows us the, the value, the power of one-on-one witness. And again, much of the early evangelism in the early church wasn't done through big tent revivals and, and monster services, but lay people who shared the good news wherever they went. Again, it says in this passage about the scattering of the church that all except the apostles were scattered by the persecution after Stephen's death. And that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It was those people that sparked the growth of the church outside of Jerusalem, at least initially. Again, we see Peter follow up on the work of Philip. But Philip shows us that pastors should lead the way. And he shows us all how. The first thing we see is obedience. 
Simple obedience. Isn't that just the bottom line of our walking with Christ and following him? Obedience. With one-on-one witness, we'll always have some kind of excuse about why we shouldn't in the moment. Like, I, there's always some place you could be, like, you need to call your wife. Like, there's all, you always find some excuse in the moment to not share one-on-one with somebody. But again, our repentance is to choose God, to be obedient to God. This is the most basic part of our repentance. And it should spark our witness. This moment-by-moment obedience to God and the Holy Spirit as it leads us. It led Philip on this desert road to find a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, that was a a well-off guy, right? If you had a chariot, that's like you're being led to a a tinted-out, souped-up Hummer. Like, that's intimidating. But I love the idea that bravery is being terrified and doing it anyways. I don't remember who said that or who what quote that's from, but bravery is, hey, I'm scared, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act anyways. And one-on-one witness, it's the same way. One-on-one evangelism, you might say that that's uncomfortable. Guess what? Me too, right? Nobody's immune. The second, first is obedient. The second thing he does is he listens. He empathizes, tries to understand where he is, what his questions are, what he's struggling with, what truth needs to come to light. Because let's face it, if we approach every person, with the same cookie-cutter presentation of the gospel. We might not answer the question that they have, what's been troubling them, an issue in their life, something they've been going through. For him, it was Isaiah 53 and what that prophecy was talking about. So Philip obeys. He listens. Then lastly, he speaks. It says in verse 35, it says, beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Now, there's this popular saying, you may have heard it, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. It's played out. <laughs> it's usually attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Most people say he probably didn't say it. But if he did, let's still look at, okay, St. Francis of Assisi. He was known to preach to animals and birds. Like, if you Google it on your phone, don't do it now, but if you look up St. Francis of Assisi, Google Images, Most of his portraits are him talking to trees full of birds. If animals and birds need words, how much more do humans, right? People that we're communicating with to understand it it takes words. Here's the other thing. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, but through the cross. So if the good news were about what we needed to do to be saved, works that we've got to do, maybe it could be communicated by actions. But it's not. The good news is about what Jesus has done to save us and how we receive it not through works, but by faith. And that can only be expressed by words. Paul says, hey, faith comes by hearing. In our witness, words are going to be necessary. So many of our encounters in life, they're brief. You have acquaintances that you might know for a season, but people that you know through every season in life that can really look at your works, what you're doing, the fruit in your life, those those are rare. For these other encounters, for these other relationships, words are needed. You know, again, we're going to the Dominican Republic next week, and we go there. We're building latrines. We're trying to get every home there with a latrine. We're trying to work our way towards building them a water water filtration system that they'll run. It'll actually provide employment in the village. So there's a lot of work we're doing there. But we get to teach vacation Bible school. Every time I go down there, I get to share the gospel through a translator. It's awesome. 
Because there's a lot of one-on-one prayer after VBS or after a presentation of the gospel. And, you know, some of it is praying for literal seeds. Some of these people hike four hours up a mountain just to tend their field where they're growing coffee beans or whatever they might be growing. So I prayed for people that, you know, that the seeds, the work of their hands would thrive. But then there's others, soon-to-be teenagers and teenagers, where I was praying for the seed of salvation, right? Because one of them came up to me and said, I want Jesus in Spanish. And that trip is it's uncomfortable. <laughs> You're all using one toilet that flushes with a bucket. You're all using that same bucket to shower with. It's just uncomfortable. <laughs> 12 to 20 people, last time there were so many, we're sharing one room, men and women separated with a tarp. But what I always try to remember on those trips is I need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because I might not be doing all those things, showering with a bucket, using a toilet that flushes with a bucket, but God's going to call me to things as a witness that are going to be uncomfortable. And we've got to get comfortable doing things for the glory of God, whether it's going to the DR and building latrines or the work we do here where God's called us in our calling. Get comfortable wherever this week scatters you. Because I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that you've got a witness to walk out This week, the people around you, again, whether you're going to the DR or whether you're going to your neighborhood, whether you're going to the mountaintop or you're going to be in a valley, there's going to be a witness. And again, the question we should ask ourselves is, what is my witness? What's the fruit of my lips? What's my witness? What what is my witness? And then the second question is, am I a witness? Have I experienced Christ for myself? Or am I just taking commentary in and sermons in? Or am I really digging into the God's word and seeing how it can apply to me every day, every moment? So tonight as we close, if I could just have the worship team come up. There's, there's one aspect of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that we haven't looked at, but we'd be foolish to overlook. And it's the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is a game changer. Again, Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jesus tells them to be witnesses. He gives them the great commission, but then he tells them to wait. And that can't be overstated because this mission that gives them purpose, this mission that gives them their calling, this mission that shapes their very destiny, he says, hey, pause Because that mission is mission impossible until the Holy Spirit gets involved. Because we can share the good news until we're blue in the face. But we're not going to save anybody. It's the Holy Spirit that brings men to conviction. It's the Holy Spirit that brings men to, to Jesus and the work of the cross and God the Father. And as we see with this Ethiopian eunuch, so often the Holy Spirit has been working on people's hearts. Philip just walked into like, it's like slow pitch. He's lofted in that one. Like, he's just reading Isaiah 53. What is this talking about? He was able to share through that the good news. This man receives Jesus, is baptized on the side of the road in a puddle. You know, Philip was full of the Holy Spirit. He had the boldness to walk up to this chariot. He had the boldness to step into this situation, even when on the surface it didn't make sense. So, again, you find one-on-one sharing of the gospel, witnessing find it to be difficult sometimes (laughs) me too you know I don't if you abhor public speaking that was me in high school and college if I had a five minute presentation 
just in the desk even hearing about it, I would get like sweaty palms. Like, I hated public speaking. The very fact I preach sometimes multiple times a week is just the fact that the Holy Spirit equips us to do whatever he's called us to do. Whatever your witness looks like, whether you're Stephen and Philip, whether you're Philip serving the tables or Philip leading a revival, the Holy Spirit's going to empower you wherever you are. Stephen was waiting these tables and miracles were popping off. The Holy Spirit wants to empower us. God doesn't want to change your personality, but he does want to transform you. And when you look at the world, and again, you watch the news, that's good news. It's good news. That the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not just information, but it offers us transformation. And if you would say tonight, I want to be a witness. I want to be a witness, but I just need more boldness. That's me tonight. I'm raising my hand for this. But if you would say tonight, I want to be a witness. I need more boldness. I want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit day by day to be aware of God's presence, to be aware of, of what my witness needs to be in each situation. Now, come on, as we stand to worship, I want to pray. I want to pray that the Spirit would come on us with boldness. Because, again, preaching is one thing. Preaching to a translator is a whole nother thing. And I know for myself, I've been praying just Ephesians 6, where Paul says, pray that God would give me the right words to boldly explain the good news. Come on, if you would say, I want the Holy Spirit to empower me to, to share the good news with boldness and to be a witness. Because, again, I can tell you that this week, you're going to have a witness that God's calling you to. Again, it might not be in the DR. It might be right here in this region. But we're called to be a witness. And if you would say, I want to walk it out, but I need boldness, then come on, just raise your hands to receive. Holy Spirit, we invite you here tonight. We thank you that, God, Jesus rose from the grave. And even he said that it's better for me to leave and for you to receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God, it empowers us. It does the work of transformation, God. I pray that you would give me and every person in this room, Lord God, the boldness we need to live out our witness. God, that we will realize no matter what our day-to-day -day looks like, that there's people you've placed around us. There's our world. God, our Jerusalem. God, that you've called us to reach. And God, I thank you for opportunities like this trip to the DR, where it's people being sent. God, people to share the witness of Jesus Christ and what he's done. God, I pray that we would see salvations not just here in this church, but at our workplaces, on buses, wherever we go, Lord God, that we're not scattered senselessly. God, but like those people of the early church, Lord God, they were scattered not as refugees, but as witnesses. Wherever they went, they were sharing the good news because when it truly affects us, we can't keep it in. When it truly affected Jerusalem, it had to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Lord God. So we just ask God, give us boldness. Give us more of your spirit. Like the song Holy Spirit says, help us to be more aware of your presence in every situation. Help us to be aware of opportunities. Help us to be aware of opportunities to share and share the hope that we have. As Peter himself said in his letter, always be prepared. Help us to forever be prepared. God, and with boldness, that can come only through your spirit. God, make us brave. God, as we sing this tonight, help this to become our reality. Well, come on, let's close with this song. God, make us brave.